Hi, I'm Jared Christ, and you're listening to the Chain Clankers Podcast. Welcome in, everybody, to the Chain Clankers Disc Golf Podcast. Today, we have a super fun and interesting interview for you guys today. We're going to be sitting down with Jared Christ, a, a local Wichita disc golfer who's just got done with a four-month disc golf tour and so super excited to talk to him about you know going and starting as an amateur and going on this disc golf tour and all the journeys that he has experienced and some tips along the way that might be able to help your disc golf game out but before we get into the interview i want to talk to you today about our sponsor for this show upper park disc golf are you ready to take your disc golf game to new heights introducing upper park disc golf the ultimate companion for disc golf enthusiasts like you picture this a sun-drenched course lush green fairways stretching out before you in the satisfying sound of that perfect throw and the disc hitting the chains with upper park disc golf bags you'll experience unparalleled comfort and functionality designed specifically for the needs of disc golfers their bags feature innovative storage solutions durable construction and ergonomic designs keeping your discs organized in your game on point with sleek and stylish designs, you'll turn heads on the course while enjoying convenience and reliability of Upper Park Disc Golf bags. Whether you're a casual player or a seasoned pro, Upper Park Disc Golf has the bag that fits your style and needs. Elevate your game by using promo code CLANKERS10 to save 10% at checkout and get your new favorite disc golf bag. Jared, super excited to have you on the podcast today. How are we doing tonight, man? I'm great. No complaints here, Quentin. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to share my story and hear about you a little bit and maybe help out some people who are wondering how to take their game to the next level. Yeah, absolutely. That's definitely the point of the show. So super glad that we were able to link up. And I actually had heard about you from one of my buddies. He was getting married and one of the guys that he was friends with was telling me all about your disc golf story and about how you were traveling the country and playing all these tournaments. And and that kind of just piqued my interest. So I want to start with how did you first get into disc golf? How long have you been playing disc golf? And where'd you kind of, where'd your roots start? Yeah. So Fort Hayes state, uh, I went out there to play college soccer and I was kind of getting burnout at the end of high school, but I decided I should play a year of college and see if maybe that love for the game resparks or if I'm really ready to be done. So I played one year of college soccer and I was still just real sick of it. You know, I knew it'd be done after four years and I wasn't going to play pro and I kind of wanted to try some other stuff and just be normal. So quit playing college soccer uh, after the fall season. So it was spring, my freshman year of college and a buddy from my dorm asked me if I wanted to go play disc golf at Frontier Park. And I had played it once, but as a little kid and, you know, didn't really know anything about it. So he took me out and the first disc I was able to get to go straight was a West Side Underworld, super oh, flippy, nice. yeah. seven speed. And yeah, once I kind of got the disc to do what I wanted, I was like, this is pretty sweet. And I just kept going out with him. He gave me a couple discs and the rest is history. And so you started primarily with understable discs, I assume. You know, you said the Underworld. Like, how quickly was it before you got a Destroyer? Was that the first thing you were grabbing, or did you kind of take the right path and wait a while before grabbing those ungodly, overstable, high-speed discs? Yeah, so so I'm forehand dominant, and obviously as I've gotten better, like, my backhand's there. But if I can choose, I'm going to throw a forehand. 
So the first disc was the Underworld. And I was throwing it backhand because that's, you know, what you teach people when you play disc golf. You'd say, reach back, you know, pull across your chest. And I can't remember what the first disc was. Maybe I tried to forehand that Underworld and it flipped over. But uh, I think a nuke. I think I got a nuke and I was able to forehand that and really get the big flex, kind of crank it over mm-hmm. on Annie. And that's the first shot I was able to get to go far. But I don't, I don't know if it was a nuke exactly. But I did grab a, like a like a straight distance driver, and I developed that forehand. And then I I, I still throw bosses as my forehand disc, and uh, a pro boss was kind of the first one I started forehanding regularly and like leaning on. And so I know there was a couple before the boss, but once I found the boss, I fell in love with it, and then I'm still throwing that boss forehand. Nice. How quickly was it that you transitioned to be more of that forehand dominant player? Where, like, you know, how long were you a backhander before you found the forehand? Honestly, I can't remember. Like I said, I just that that West Side Underworld was the first backhand disc I could get to go straight. But if you've played Frontier Park, um, there's a lot of forehand. Like the longer holes are like forehand friendly. Um, there's a lot of straight 300 foot shots, putter mid, like gentle hyzer backhand shots. But the ones that are long, like 350 plus, are forehand. So I think I just once I got to a point where I was like, okay, I'm able to get some birdies and kind of play disc golf. I want to attack those longer holes. I think that's when I really started uh, figuring out that flex forehand and leaning on it heavily to try to attack those longer holes. But I don't know exactly when that transition yeah. happened. And what was it in your game? I, I, you know, you said you started making some birdies. Was it more just on a consistent basis? Like you found yourself being more consistent, and that was when it's like, okay, I've learned how to play disc golf. I now need to take my game to the next level. Or was it, you know, some buddies pushing you? Kind of how'd that go for you? Yeah. So uh, I played a little. I played freshman year, and I was like, this is cool. I got a couple discs, but wasn't that crazy into it. My childhood best friend came to Fort Hayes after he finished up at Pratt Community College. So we got a house together, and I showed him disc golf, and we had been ke- competing with each other since we were little kids at everything. So we're living together. I show him disc golf. What do you know? Another thing we could be competitive at. And we started really hitting it hard, just wanting to beat each other. And, uh, you know, figuring out the classes I could skip that I didn't really need to go to, to go so I could go play disc nice. golf. And... Um, we kind of just got to be like some of the better college, the Fort Hayes college players. You know, a lot of people went out casually, but we had like the full bag and we were like getting real serious, putting our rounds in U-Disc. And that friend who introduced me to disc golf freshman year convinced uh, my, my childhood best friend's name is Marcello, the one I was living with. He convinced Marcello and I to play the Frontier Open in 2020 the uh, COVID year. And so we were like, well, it's our home course. You know, we know it probably better than anywhere else. Let's give it a shot. So I signed up in intermediate and uh, got second. And I was like, all right, I can play this game decently at, at the amateur level. And I was like, all right, I want to get to the MA one division. And after that, I want to get to the pro division. So I just started putting in my free time playing fewer casual rounds and going and doing field work and looking at my form and figuring out how to, how to get better. What was the biggest difference for you taking you from 
a casual, amateur, intermediate, advanced player to that pro player? Was it improving in the putting department or was it the form and driving department? Uh, I would say you got to have all of it, uh, but primarily putting. Like, you just you don't have to be that great of a thrower of a thrower of the disc to compete at C tiers and B tiers in the pro division. If I'm being honest, if you're making C one putts, like nobody's business, 25 to 30 feet every time and never missing inside 20, like your score is just going to go down quickly. So I would say putting I'm big on, I mean, it's drive for show, putt for dough, but really that short game. Like if you can scramble inside 250 and how many holes in parks and stuff around Kansas, like there's so many holes under 250 feet or under 300 feet. So like you don't have to be a big distance guy unless you're on the pro tour. But if you can shape a shot, scramble and make C1 putts, like you're going to be a competitive local pro. So I'd say putting and short game probably. Yeah, and I like the way that you put that because I feel a lot of the listeners of this podcast and newer players who get into disc golf – Probably the max potential slash goal should be I can be a local pro. Like I can go out and I can play an MPO, FPO and do pretty good. I'll win a tournament here or there. Maybe you're really dominant, right? But to think that you're going to make the pro tour with how good the tour is getting every single year, I'm not saying it's not possible, but it's starting to get more towards, okay, like how many people actually make the NFL? How many people actually make the NBA, MLB, those kinds of things. So it's getting a lot more difficult, especially Mm -hmm. because there's, and we'll talk about it. It's really hard financially just to get there unless you have a ton of backing. So I, I like the way that you put that, that in your local areas, in your state, whatever it is, if you can be a menace on that green and just not miss putts and have that confidence that you're going to be able to knock down those C1 putts, you're probably going to do really well in a lot of events. And for you then, what was your putting routine or your putting drills that you would do in your free time that would help you get so good at putting? Yeah, so initially it's evolved a little bit, um, but it started with a, obviously a basket in the backyard And then I think I just had five judges. So I would just go, you know, walk out to that. Everyone knows that distance. You walk a couple strides from the basket and you're like, okay, I should make this, but there's a chance I miss it. So, you know, call it 15, 18 feet when you're starting out. I'd throw my first one from that distance. If I made it, I'd step back, throw my next one. If I made it, I'd step back and keep going until I made all the putters. Um, If I missed that first one, then I'd throw the second one from there and right. And I would wait till I, made the putter from whatever distance I was at and take a step back. Um, I was, that's good because it's reps, you know, whatever. But then I got on YouTube and looked up like pro putting drills, pro putting tips. What are the pros doing to get better at putting? And I found, I think it was Avery Jenkins, uh, a game called all in or somebody to anyway, take your mini markers. If you have two or three or four, I like four because you can go headwind, tailwind, right to left wind, left to right wind. And I would put them all at 12 feet, we'll say, top, you know, right side up of the mini. You know, there's the top side of the disc and the bottom side. So top side up. And however many putters you have, if that's two, that's great. If that's three, four, five, whatever. I would put all my putters from that mini marker. If I made them all, flip the mini marker upside down and do your secondary stance. So for me, I'm a stagger stance putter. If I made all my stagger stance from 12 feet, Flip it. Now I got to make all of them from a straddle. If I make them all from a straddle, 
step back one foot or one step. So like three feet. And then that gets you in your range where you're, where you're, you might make them all, you might miss a couple and you want to be in that range where you're making 80% of your putts. Because if you go out, I just see so many people go out there before a round or whatever practice putting and they're airballing or they're missing and they're just not making those practice putts. And it's like, it's not, you know, it's not my duty to tell someone they're doing it wrong out on the course. So obviously don't say anything, but if I could say something now to anybody who wants to take their game to the next level, make 80% of your practice putts or more. It does you no good to go out and miss practice putts and find that range. If it's 25 feet where, or 20 feet, you're like, I'm 80%, then obviously step back and try to try to push that boundary. But you know, you make 40 or 50% after stepping back. It's like, okay, I'm still at this range. I'm going to step it up. So that game all in where you're, uh, you know, flipping the mini over and doing your secondary like putting stance. And if you make them all from there, take a step back. That just keeps you at that distance where you're probably making about 80%. Um, and if you don't make all of those putters, then stay where you're at. So, um, that just gives you a lot of reps at those short putts that get you making casual rounds without thinking about it. You get into a tournament, that 15 footer gets a little nervy. You add a little headwind, you try to lean forward a little bit more and then you cage it. It's like, you can't be missing those. So, um, yeah, the minis around the basket and stepping back, uh, gradually, I would say is, is that's what I still do for the most part for putting. Yeah, that is so true. The, uh, in my backyard, and I, I'm going to ask you this later, but in my backyard, it's like, I can't miss. I don't care what the distance is. I cannot miss. Soon as I get to the course, it's like, oh, wow, that 15-footer looks a lot further than 15 feet all of a sudden. And so when you're doing this drill and you're doing the step back, that like when you make all of them and then you step back, is it make all of them? Okay, now I'm going to the next station. So let's say you have the headwind. Now you're going to do the tailwind and then you're going to do the first cross and the second cross. And then you step back all around or is it, I'm going to step back. Okay. I've done 10 minutes at the headwind. Now I'll go to the cross and do that for 10 minutes. Uh, how, how do you break that up? Great question. Sorry. I didn't answer that initially. So if I'm say I'm putting from the tailwind and I make them all, I'll flip that mini move to the next one and you just, you know, either go clockwise, counterclockwise, whatever. So that mini is flipped and I'm coming back to it, but I'm stepping to the next station, make the putters either. Oh, I missed one. Then that one stays bummer. I got to wait till I come all the way back around and have another chance. Or if I make it flip it and just keep going around and trying to move that, move that comfort circle further and further away uh, from the basket. And if you find yourself missing a lot, you know, you're saying you want to make eight out of 10, where that'd be four out of five if you have five in your hand. And, and let's say you start finding yourself getting closer to that 60% mark. You're making three out of five or maybe two out of five. At what point are you like, okay, I am doing myself a disservice by being out here. I need to just take a break and go inside and try this again later. Um, that can happen. I mean, practice is or progress is not linear. It's a, up and down roller coaster ride that gradually trends upward over a long period of time. And I have anybody who's tried to practice has, has probably experienced that. I think if you are frustrated with yourself or you're just not in a positive mental state, don't force the practice, right? You can go out and practice, but if you're not there or you're just going through the motions or you're just, you're not paying attention to what you're doing, it's, it's pointless, right? You got to be there cognitively and, and, and want to be there. So sometimes for me, it's been, if, if I just can't, can't make a putt, 
it's like I'll just scoot that comfort circle in. Like if you know, I know I can make 25 footers, but some days they're just you know I'm not making 80 percent from 25 feet. So don't don't have an ego. Don't think oh well because yesterday I made them from 25 that today I'm gonna make them from 25. If you're not making them from 25, scoot up to 20. If you're not making them from 20, scoot up to 15. And uh, I'm big on kind of leave that ego at the door. Like that's not you got to be objective in how you evaluate yourself. And some days it's just not there. So if you're frustrated, maybe go work on something else or do something else. But if you can find a way to say, man, that's a bummer. I'm just not making them from where I normally do and go ahead and step forward and still be there and still be positive and, and be focused on what you're doing. Then I think that's the way to do it and still get those reps in. Yeah. I really like that answer because I think that gives a lot of the listeners a line in the sand of when it's time to walk away and go inside and or like you said if you don't want to go inside you want to keep going at it okay then that comfort circle is about to get a lot smaller and you need to lock in and and how have you found this has, has this drill been a big help in transitioning those backyard putts to the course like that's that's something that i'm currently struggling with i know a lot of disc golfers are struggling with that what i'm doing in the backyard is not translating to the course every single time is that you know maybe start trying this drill is it a lack of focus and being locked in when you're actually putting in the backyard or, or what, what do you think about that have you ever struggled with that yeah, so I think it's easy to make you know make everything in the backyard. Uh, it's usually less windy. It's usually really flat. So I like to, if it's early morning, or uh, just try to find a time when the disc golf course isn't super busy. Or like for me, luckily, Hayes, Kansas, there weren't a lot of disc golfers anyway. I would do that drill at a basket on the course. So you're getting the wind. You're getting, you know, maybe it's like there's several baskets where you're putting high to low, or there's several where you're putting low to high. So like one day I'd go to this basket, the next day I'd go to this basket because no putts the same. You know what I mean? Or like several putts are the same. You know, you have your, it's 20 feet and the basket's not elevated and I should make this. But the more you can go put some foliage in your backswing, you know how annoying it is when mm -hmm. you've got a little leaf and it's brushing your hand, like go put yourself in a position that where, where you're making putts that are, are the troublesome, difficult putts that you have when you find yourself on the course and obviously some like depending on where you live, there might be one course that might be super busy. So that's tough. Um, but I would say the more, the more like practice putting you can do on the course or on a basket that's like hard to make putts on. I think that helps translate the practice to the round, but it's, it just takes time. I mean, those backyard putts are helping, but it just takes, it takes so long. It takes so long, man. You just got to stick with it. And it probably also takes some consistency with it. If you putt on Friday and then you don't touch your putter for four days and then you putt on Tuesday and then you don't touch it for two days and you put it you know, on Thursday again, and there's no consistency with it. I imagine that kind of hurts it as well. Like something that I've been trying to push on the show is, you know, give me 10 minutes a day, give me 10 minutes a day out there. And if you can get to a hundred putts a day, you're going to find your putting get so much better. So quick. I, I literally made a TikTok today. It was a little sat satirical, but it was, you know, if you want to make the number one tip to make more putts is to practice more. And the more practice and consistency you do, you're going to find yourself making more putts on the course. So I really like the way that you've put this. And so I want to then kind of move on from here. We've, you know, gotten really good at putting 
starting to play in this tournament, you did really good. How did that then transition to like, what was next for you? So you get second at the tournament. Is it okay? Every weekend I'm signing up for a tournament. No. So I was still in college at that time. I was uh, working at a jewelry store part-time and refereeing soccer. So, and still a full-time student. So I had enough on my plate, but, um, Man, how did it happen? So that was the only tournament. That was uh, September 2020. And I don't think I played again the rest of the fall. Um, But I practiced a lot. I was like, okay, well, next season, I want to see if I can play an MA1 and be competitive. So I practiced the rest of the fall, had work, whatever. And that's a lie. I played one in November. I played Wichita Roundup. So that was oh, the second tournament uh-huh. I played. And I think I played MA1 and did really, like, did not play very well. And I think I missed cash and I really struggled. But it, it um, to answer your question, no, it wasn't an every weekend thing. It was kind of gradual, I'd say, over the next year where I started playing more frequently. Um, but, yeah, I still had school, so it was, like, maybe once a month. I think I made it the goal that next season to try to play one tournament a month. And I think I might have done that. Um and then after I graduated college, I moved out to North Carolina and lived with my brother. And that's really when I started playing MPO. I played a bunch of C tiers in MPO and kind of figured out how do I cash an MPO? If that's last cash, whatever. Like I just want to be consistent. And um, there's a ton of good pros out there. So even at local C tiers, there were multiple thousand rated players. And I was like, 955 at that point 950 just kind of trying to hang and um it just takes experience watching how other guys break down the course um seeing when you maybe don't need to get so aggressive and how to play conservative and there's so many different factors that go into putting several consistent rounds together um but over from from the time i played my first tournament to probably last year i just um started playing a little bit more frequently every six months probably or something like that. Gotcha. Yeah. So just kind of ramping up, getting more used to tournaments, learning more from a lot of these guys and and taking what they're doing, applying it to your game and, and becoming a better disc golfer. So you're in North Carolina. Is that when the idea came into your head that you were going to go on this tour? Like maybe let's take a step back and maybe describe what that when I refer to the tour, what, what did that, what does that mean for you? What was your tour? Yeah. So, um, Moved out to North Carolina. I was so, I had graduated college with two degrees, construction management and business Spanish, and was like, man, I don't want to be a construction project manager. Last thing I want to do. So I moved out there to live with my brother and I started waiting tables. Really glad I did that. I think everybody should be a server at some point. It's just good experience. Um, so I was waiting tables. I was, you know, staying fit and playing disc golf and Still kind of just unsure what I wanted to do. I was out there eight months, and I found um, I, I train calisthenics on the side, so I do like handstands and flips and pull-ups and all kinds of like monkeying around body weight stuff. And I was getting really, really into my calisthenics training, and I also had cashed at like my last six pro events or something and not much right like made my money back maybe made 50 bucks here and there but i was like okay i can cash or i have been cashing consistently in the pro division and 
I'm getting really excited about this calisthenics training. I'd like to take that to the next level. So I started working on my personal training certification and I decided, I thought I wanted to move back to Wichita and be a personal trainer, spread my love for calisthenics and play disc golf. So I moved home living with my parents and I tried to do that with no startup money. That was very difficult. Um, I got a couple of clients, but it kind of fizzled out. Didn't really know what I was doing. And, but I was still playing disc golf really, really hard and cashing. And I was like, well, clearly I still don't know what I want to do, but I have this personal training certification. I have my two degrees. I have this, you know, server experience. I'm living with my parents. I don't want to live with my parents. I'm 23 at this point. And I was like, well, it's kind of now or never to try playing disc golf full time because like you're saying the the tour is just getting like the pro tour is just getting absurd with 15 16 17 18 year old kids who have been playing their whole life coming out and giving these world champs a run for their money so it's like all right I'm 23 you know if I want to even try this I better get after it so February of this year rolls around and I had a little nest egg saved up and I was like I'm gonna go for it so it was cold. It was February. Not really able to practice here in Wichita that much. I mean, you can, but you know, when it's when it's cold, you can only like throw so much before your hand freezes. So I was like, I'm gonna head down to Arizona for a month and just do field work and practice and get my off season that I haven't really had. So I went down to Phoenix and practiced every day for a month. And that's actually when I also went to Tucson because it's real close and stayed with my buddy, David Hawkins from high school. And he, I think, reached out to you or told me about you and told you about me. And um, yeah, bounced between Tucson and Phoenix, practiced. And then at the beginning of March, I signed up for my first tournament of the year in, uh, it's called Truth or Consequences, New Mexico, funny little town. And I was actually able to take down the win there first tournament of the season, which was really, really a confidence booster and nice uh, little paycheck to start off the tour with. Um, and from there, I basically just got on disc golf scene and put in like 300 mile radius from where I was and looked for the next B tier, like the following weekend. Um, and there was one like in Southern California or there was one in West Texas. And I was like, well, I've been in Arizona this whole time. Uh, I don't really know if I want to go back there, if I want to go see some new stuff. So I signed up for the one in West Texas, played that one, didn't do as well. And then same thing. I just looked for the next B tier the following weekend. It was in Oklahoma City, popped up to Oklahoma City. And then that's kind of how I just kept doing it. It ended up being Arizona to New Mexico to Texas to Oklahoma to Nebraska to Kansas, to Nebraska, to Colorado. And then I finished up in Nebraska before I came back for the firefighter interview, which was actually on Tuesday. So I didn't do too much venturing just to the Southwest and back, but that was four months of playing almost every weekend. I think I played seven or eight events in a row and I was wow. like, oh my gosh, I need, I need a weekend off. And yeah. it's a grind. I mean, it's your job. And when, when you only get a chance to make money one or two days out of the week and you got to spend the rest of the days just just working hard to put yourself in contention on the weekend, like it's stressful. So that was my that was my tour, if you will. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. 
Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yeah. And so take me through your living experience on this tour. Did you have a van that you kind of tricked out and that's what you were driving around? Were you Airbnb and hotels? What did that look like for you? I wish I had a van. I uh, have a Subaru Forester. So I bought an air mattress from a brand called Luno, L-U-N-O. If you like car camping, getting out, uh, check them out. If you want a customized air mattress that fits in the back of your SUV, they make them for all makes and models. So pretty sweet brand. So my Luno air mattress custom fit the back of my Subaru and I slept, I scooted my passenger seat all the way forward and built a little board that bridges that gap behind the mm. passenger seat, like where your feet would be if you were sitting behind the passenger seat and put that second row down and then blew up my air mattress and put some memory foam on the top of that and then had a sleeping bag. So it was pretty comfy, especially when it was cool in the, in the early spring. Um, I had my, my, my bed there and then next to me in the, on the other half of the side of the car, I had my food cooler, all that kind of stuff. And my duffel bag with my clothes in the, passenger seat I had my disc golf bag and at the feet of the passenger seat I had my shoes um, and I had a towel that I draped over the head of the passenger seat and I showered at Planet Fitness so I slept out of my car and yeah I just pretty much got up every day found a course it was usually early morning and during the week so most people are at work and like I said I was able to do that putting drill play the course throw approach shots do field work and um yeah, just just hit it hard all day. Yeah, and so that I mean that takes some guts right there. Just, you know, going from living a comfortable life, I'll say, to complete 180 living out of the back of your SUV. What was the biggest challenge in doing that? Looking back on that. Oh, there were several. I would say p- pushing myself out the door initially just just I knew I wanted to, but just I just needed somebody to push me off the cliff. And so I'm glad I was able to conjure up the courage to do that. And once I got out there, it was not that scary. Like everyone's like, Oh, you know, it's, Oh, there's criminals and you're parking in random places. And I found that there are so many more kindhearted people than you would believe. When you tell people what you're doing, you're following a dream, the disc golf community, reaching out on Facebook, going to events and spectating. And like, I met so many people that gave me their number and were like, let me know if you need a place to stay. If you're in this city, like I met some, when I was in, I spectated Memorial. I didn't play in it. I met two people. I met a gentleman from Denver who I ended up staying with when I was in Colorado and a lady from Seattle who I haven't stayed with because I made it out there. But 
Um, they both just gave me their number. We're like, let me know if you need a place to stay. Um, and there's, and then when I was in West Texas, I just messaged on the local disc golf page. It was like, Hey, I'm a touring pro traveling through town. Um, there's no planet fitness here. So, uh, is there anyone who would be willing to let me bum a shower? I'd be happy to play a practice round with you, do anything like that. And this, the local mailman reached out and was like, Hey, I'd love to play with you. And you're welcome to come back to my place and shower. And, um, so I found really, there's just a lot of good people out there. Um, nonetheless, it, it was still lonely. I think like day to day waking up and being like your whole thing you have to do today is practice disc golf. It's like, well, six hours of practicing disc golf and you're kind of done, you know? Yeah. Um, and not having like, um, maybe a roommate to come home to or friends to talk to, or, you know, I'd call people, but like that human interaction day to day, I'm very extroverted and I need that. So that was tough. Like that, there were nights I was very lonely. Like, what am I doing? You know, this is crazy. Um, but, uh, I know there were so many people reaching out to me on Instagram and friends that supported me that were like, just living vicariously through me and, and supporting me on Patreon or whatever. And we're like, you're doing it, man. Like, stay with it. You're doing something really hard. And we all, we all respect the grind. So I was like, well, it's lonely. Of course it's hard, but I'm like making people I love proud. So that was kind of the encouragement to keep going. Yeah. What would you do with those other 18 hours? I mean, if you're practicing disc golf six hours a day and, and let's be honest, six hours a day, that's a lot of work. You know, how did you not throw your arm off, but you do disc golf for six hours a day. Maybe that's a little bit of hyperbole, three, four, whatever it is, but then, okay, you sleep for eight hours. There's still a lot of time in between. What were you doing during those hours? Yeah. So that was something I didn't quite calculate right before I left. Uh, but I would play as much as I could, you know, if I threw really hard the last day, then I'd mostly do short shots and approach the next day, you know, kind of let my arm recover. And so there's definitely that, like you could, you could outdo it, overdo it. Um, I'm a big reader. So I usually read an hour, two hours a day. Um, I like sci-fi. I like, uh, I've kind of been on a, um, philosophy and religious, uh, stint where I'm sort of digging into Eastern philosophy and Zen Buddhism. Um, so I like to read, meditate. I work out, like I said, um, I hang my gymnastics rings from monkey bars at a park and I do, you know, pull-ups and push-ups and jump squats and pistol squats. I play on my slack line and, um, I try to just play outside all day while it was light out. But even then after the sun goes down, I get to planet fitness and I shower. It's still like, 8 p.m. and it would kind of suck i'd like sit in the front seat of my car and watch youtube on my phone or i'd lay in my bed and um it was definitely crammed my lower back was suffering for sure just from kind of being in a crammed space not having like a couch to recline on in the evening um so yeah it was tricky to fill the day but i found ways to to pass the time Nice. And so where would you stay? Was it just like Walmart parking lots at the course? Like what was your strategy for finding a place to sleep every night? Yeah. So I would either stay at Planet Fitness or Walmart parking lots. Um, I just park under one of the parking lot lights just in a well-lit area. I felt like, you know, a car under the lights maybe maybe less of a target than one out in the dark. And then I had Reflectix insulation, which is like bubble wrap with like 
reflective. It kind of looks like tin foil on both sides. Okay. Uh, but I, I just cut those to the shape of all my windows and then put uh, a piece of Velcro on my window, put two pieces on there, and then the, you know, the other... So there's like, what do you get? The hook and groove, or I don't know what you call it. There's, I put the the rugged one on the window and the soft fuzzy one on the Reflectix and then just Velcro the Reflectix up to my windows. And uh, that's how I made it nice and dark for me while I was sleeping. Nice, nice. There you go. And so one thing that I think a lot of people maybe struggle with on this time period and trying to tour is, is the financial side. And, and maybe can you talk a little bit about the stress of if I don't cash at this tournament, it's done. Like, I don't even know how I'm going to get home to Wichita. Like, did you have any of those moments? Oh, I did. So first tournament I won, I, I spent a lot of money the first month cause I wasn't playing disc golf and I was just living in Phoenix and it's not cheap in Phoenix. So that first tournament was great. And, but then you still have to sign up for the next tournament and B tiers, you know, are 60 to a hundred dollars. So it's like, um, you know, it's an investment to sign up for the next tournament, but you also have to like have gas and food, uh, you know, for the next week. So I definitely lived frugally. Um, I'm trying to remember the first time I was like, Oh my gosh, I have no money. So West Texas, Oklahoma city, I think after, I was cashing, so I was doing fine, but it was always like, I always had just like a grand, and I was like, if 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 I don't cash for like, you know, the next two tournaments, like, I was spending $200 a week on gas, uh, and $50 a week on food or whatever, so I was just always like, had a couple hundred bucks, or like several hundred bucks or a thousand dollars. But I was like, still that, you know, if, if your car breaks down, you can yeah. spend a thousand dollars on your car instantly. So that was never like, I was never at zero, but I was at an amount that was uncomfortable for me. Cause I've always been a saver and always had, yeah. you know, enough. Um, but I went ahead, my cousin was like, Hey dude, you should start a Patreon. And I, I was just like, I don't want to ask people for money. Like I chose to do this. This is on me. Like this is nobody else's burden. And that was really hard for me to be like asking people for money when I decided to do this. But sure enough, it took, I did a, started a Patreon with a couple different tiers and some family members and some friends contributed. So I was making like $150 a month with that, which was, which was like all I needed just for gas and food. Um, so that was huge and that kept me going and, and I just tried to post and be in communication with those people, you know, sending me money and, um, luckily like, yeah, if not for those guys, it, it would have been tough. Yeah. What, what, I mean, 50 bucks on food a week, what were you eating that you were able to survive on $50? Yeah. So I would have a cup of instant coffee in the morning and not eat breakfast and then my first meal of the day would be oatmeal around noon after I had like gone for a run or like practiced disc golf for a little bit and needed a break. I would have, I had a jet boil. So it's like a mug that like the bottom of it screws into a isopropane or iso. Oh, I don't know what the fuel is. Call it propane, but basically this tank and I do oats with uh, a scoop of peanut butter, a scoop of protein powder and a chopped up banana. And so that was like really dense caloric 
-hmm. like high protein, high carb, good fuel for the day. And then for dinner, I would have, I'd use that same jet boiled. I'd make a can of stew and I'd do beans, uh, Rotel diced tomatoes and a can of tuna. And I'd change the, like, sometimes I'd do mixed veggies. Sometimes I'd do tomatoes. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I'd do garbanzo beans. Sometimes I'd do black beans, but like, so my beans and my veggies would change, but my protein was always a can of tuna. And I had seasonings, crushed red pepper, garlic, salt, pepper, stuff like that. And I'd season up my stew. And honestly, not that bad. Like I had a warm meal and I was just physically like uh, expending a lot of energy during the day. So those two meals were enough. I was a little hungry, but um, I'd fall right asleep and then repeat the process the next day. So canned food and oatmeal. Have you had the canned stew slash oatmeal since you've been back? I have. I just made some oatmeal this morning in my jet boil because it's so convenient. Nice. And um, if I'm if I don't want to cook, I was staying in Lincoln, Nebraska with my buddy the last week. And I was just like, well, I'm not working, so I'm not going to be like while I was living in a, in his apartment. I was like, I'm not going to go buy chicken and nice things. I just yeah. this is what I have. So I was still eating it. And uh, yeah, I'm big on health and nutrition, so I can sacrifice a little flavor um, to get by. But obviously, yeah, sure. flavor is nice. Yeah. So. And so you said you were on the road for what, seven, eight tournaments, just back to back to back. Um, out of those tournaments, how many did you end up cashing at? I have cash in every event I've played this year except one. Okay. So kind of like we were talking a little bit earlier, then if you would have maybe, maybe towards the, when, when, when was that one that you didn't cash? Was it toward the beginning, middle, end? When did that kind of fall in the timeline? Um, I could look it up, but it was fairly recently. It would have been, I don't know if it was April or March. I think it was right at the end of March. I was in Colorado Springs and it might've been April. So it was, it was like halfway through slash the back end. So, I mean, I, I cash, I played really well, like while I was out there and had I not, I would have had to do something else, you know, for money. Um, so luckily I took a gamble on myself and I put in the work and I was playing well enough, but that one I didn't cash hurt because when you get used to cashing, like my bad rounds would be at my rating or like fifth, sixth place. I was like, Oh my gosh, I played so bad and I still made $300 and then to not cash and be like, Oh, that's what actually playing bad feels like. Like I'm still capable of playing way below my rating. Uh, that was an eye opener for sure. I, I got a little too big for my britches, I think, cause I was playing really well and getting a lot of top five finishes. And then that 17th place, oof, missed cash by a stroke. Oh, and, uh, wow. I was, yeah, just, would you have rather just not even been close? Like, I mean, 10 strokes off of cash or would it or would it have been better how it happened and you were the one stroke off i i think i'm i would i'll take every place i can get i i yeah. think i'm i'm glad for how it happened if i could pick i'm i would rather be one stroke out of cash than 10 strokes out of cash yeah um, yeah cuz i played a really bad first round and kind of decent enough second round so it's like man even a bad day for me was one stroke out of cash so that's it it's encouraging you know there's yeah. plenty of people who would who would love to be in that position like oh you know you cash all the time and you played one event poorly and you miss cash by one stroke so like it's easy to think about what we don't have and get greedy but i know there's people who would love to be in that position so yeah absolutely 
going into that tournament after that, was there that heightened sense of, if I don't cash, this is it. Like, I have to play good. Was there that, like, Mamba mentality, that locked in? Or were you treating it just like every single other tournament? Um, I was just had a vendetta. I was just mad at myself. So my next tournament, actually, uh, the following weekend was the 303 Open in Denver. A uh, big A tier. And I was on the wait list for a long time. I was creeping up. I was, like, number seven on the wait list. And I ended up walking through the course and... Um, in my opinion, it did not get the care it needed or the professionalism it deserved for an A tier. And I could not justify spending $250 for the entry fee and knowing that I was playing like Joe, Joe Revere was there. Aaron Gossage ended up winning it. Um, Joel Freeman. Yeah. Um, a lot of the thousand rated guys from the North or not from the Midwest area. So I knew I had to be like on top of my game, even to be like, bottom of the cash so that was the first weekend i didn't play i backed out i saved the 250 and i was like i have some like i'm just gonna kind of relax this week and give myself a break the next weekend i signed up for a c tier in brush colorado and there were eight pros and i was like the second highest rated or something so i was like if you don't get first or second you suck and that's not where your head should be but i was like you better get first or second this weekend. And shocker, I got last cash at a C tier. I tied three ways for last cash, and I, I only just like made my entry fee back. So that was discouraging. Um, but financially, I was still okay. And I was signed up for the Star City shootout in Lincoln, Nebraska the following weekend, and I had a place to stay. So I knew I was okay. Mm. But that was another kind of hit to the ego, which is good. Cause like I said, you, you can't, you can't let your ego get out of control, but uh, you got to show up every weekend. It doesn't matter if it's a B tier, A tier, C tier, people are, people are there to play. And um, so, yeah. So mainly you played B tiers. You said, what was the reason for playing B tiers instead of just trying to go to C tiers and clean up? So even if you clean up at a C tier, like, most you're going to make is 200 bucks. And a lot of time it's like a hundred or 150, you know, cause they're just smaller events. Gotcha. Whereas B tiers, the entry fees aren't that much more expensive than a C tier. There's a bigger field, but it, um, how do I say? It's like, not that there's bad players at B tiers or something, but it, it's like, okay. If you go to an A tier, there's going to be, like I said, those few guys on the pro tour that maybe have an off weekend and are playing. Right. And like, I'm just, I'm not that good. I'm not going to compete with those guys. Um, and if you play C tiers every weekend, you're just, you're not giving yourself the opportunity to make five, six, $700, which is kind of, you know, what you want to give yourself that cushion if you don't play well the next couple weekends. So the B tiers were not that much more expensive to sign up for much. They always have at least $750 added cash. And a lot of the ones I played had like a grand or more added cash. So I was looking at that to see, you know, what is first place paying? What is first place playing for? Oh, it's $600, $700, $800. And so knowing that there'd be more cash slots, like if you play, if you get second at a C tier, you could still play well and only make 90 bucks. But if you get second at a B tier, you're making several hundred dollars. So there was just more uh, um, potential to make money playing the B tiers and where still your top, rated players and B tiers are like a thousand, maybe 10, 10. There's a lot of those guys in the upper nine hundreds, nine eighty, where I find myself now. So it was like, I knew I'd still be competitive at that B tier level and have a chance to make more money. 
Gotcha. And so if someone was to kind of go in your shoes and do what you did, you would recommend you got to get on that B tier grind because C tier, I feel like more maybe than just the way you're describing it more. If you don't cash in a couple events in a row at a C tier, you're going to be in a lot worse position than at a B tier. I would say so. I mean, it, not cashing in either is a not, not a situation you want to find yourself if you're yeah. playing disc golf for money. But I think it's, you know, you could play, depending on the level of player you are, obviously you have to have some idea of if you're actually going to be competitive before you go out and try to win money full-time playing disc golf. But if you kind of know your level and know that you can play like okay at a B tier and still make money, um, that's kind of the goal. So I'd say if you find yourself, if you want to try to go play disc golf full time, I would say you got to be at least 970 rated. Like you just have to have some tournament experience. You got to know that you can shoot thousand rated rounds and contain those bad rounds to mid 900s or upper 900s. Um, if you're not there, not that you couldn't do it. It's just going to be really, really hard and you probably need a second gig. I mean, I, I, should have had a second gig for money and just happened to play well enough that I didn't need to, but um, probably be at least 970 rated and uh, rating doesn't matter, whatever we can get into all of that, but it, it, it is an indicator of what you have done in the past. And, you know, don't, uh, I would say if, if you're 920 rated and you want to go out and live uh, and play pro disc golf at B tiers, uh, you better also have a remote job is all. That's very fair. And I think, you know, there is the debate about the ratings, but in situations like these, the ratings are good. Once you're on the pro tour, ratings don't matter. You're on the pro tour. You got your pro card. Six sponsors, whatever. You got a van. It doesn't matter. Absolutely. It's anyone's weekend, any weekend. But until then, you know, it it, it matters a little bit at some point. It does. I mean, that's the difference between you putting yourself in a, a position of if I'm 920, which I think that's relatively close to what it says my rating is. I haven't played a tournament in a year. But like if I said, OK, I'm going to go out as a 920 rated disc golfer and I'm going to do this. I am probably going to fail just probability wise. If we're being honest with ourselves, I'm probably going to fail and have to end up coming home or, or quitting earlier than I wanted or whatever. Where if you're higher, if you're 970, 980, 990, you have a higher probability of playing well, especially if you have a lot of tournaments under your belt and you're at that 950, 960, 980, you're proving to yourself that you don't get skittish when you play in tournaments. And if your life depends on you playing well in tournaments, you can't afford to be skittish in missing 10-foot putts in tournaments because you're anxious or you're nervous because you're playing in a tournament. If you have any of those feelings, I don't think people can do what you did, right? I assume you didn't have those jitters or that like skittedness, if if you know what I'm talking about. Did you have any of that the entire time or was that long gone by the time you did this? I think the nerves will always be there, especially if you're a competitor, but at a certain point you learn how to deal with them, right? Like you said, you can't miss it. You can't expect to cash in pro and miss 10 foot putts. I mean, even 20 foot putts like, um, so definitely there's some nerves for me. It's always like I throw my first tee shot, I'm dialed in. And then right when I release the disc, I feel my heart start pounding. And I'm like, so I'm, I'm able to dial in, take a deep breath, throw my shot. And then after the shot, I'm like, okay, yeah. Like, you know, this is still important, um, but same thing. Finding a routine to sort of get yourself relaxed is important before every shot. And the more you play, the better you get at that. So, gotcha. So, what is next for you in your disc golf career? Yeah. So right now, um, 
I have my second round interview for the fire department tomorrow. It's another uh, like physical fitness test followed by an interview. Um, I feel really good about it. So my focus is on getting this firefighter job because the schedule is 24 hours on 48 off. So that gives me so much time to play disc golf still and work on other things. Um, that being said, that's my main focus, especially for the next couple months. Um, as far as disc golf goes, play locally. I'm playing Duda this weekend. I'm going to play a tournament in Emporia next weekend. Um, there's a lot of B tiers and C tiers within a three hour drive of Wichita or super, you know, Oklahoma city's got big events. Kansas city's got big events. There's some events coming out in Hayes, Kansas. I got a plug because that's where I'm from and Hayes has a great course. Um, so just playing locally connecting. I'm sure that I hope that there'll be more. Uh, I know there's people that are curious to hear about, uh, my little, my little adventure. So share that. And then, yeah, just get back in touch with, with my friends and play with the local people as I, uh, sort of transition into this, hopefully this new job and this new, uh, part of my life. So disc golf has been great. I'm glad I tried the full-time thing, but when it is your job, it's easy for it to not be fun. And I could feel it kind of turning into the whole thing with soccer again. Like it's an obligation. I got to get up and practice. And when it's more like a hobby and, you know, you find yourself with some downtime, it's way more fun to practice when you want to, you know, but when it's a, I have to every day and I have to play this weekend, it's easier for it to not be fun. So I kind of found that to be the case. And I was like, you know, this is a game I really love and I want to play for a long time. Um, so I don't want it to be an obligation. I don't want it to be something I, you know, lose, lose, um, the excitement for. So I think for my disc golf career now, it's going to be finding that balance of playing maybe every other weekend, every two weekends and finding a way to still get engaged with the community, but also, um, have a job and save up some money. Cause it's not fun to scrape by financially. Um, it's a good experience. And I think if you don't have any debts and you don't have anything tying you down, and you have the opportunity, you should go out and travel and do something. And, and it's very eye-opening. But uh, it's it's also really nice to have a kitchen and a shower and yeah. uh, your own space. So <laughs> Yeah, I I can imagine, you know, having that your whole life and then giving it up and then getting it back. Yeah, I, I can definitely imagine. Jared, this has been so much fun. I know I learned a lot and I know I'm definitely not ready to make the leap that you made <laughs> I need to get out on the course and work on my putting and try try the drill that you gave on the show. Where can people continue to connect with you and follow your journey? Yeah, so Instagram is probably the best platform. I tried YouTube. I'm really bad at it. I don't like making videos. Uh, you can follow me at Jared underscore Chris on Instagram. I'll be doing calisthenics, disc golf stuff. And uh, yeah, that's probably the best place to find me. Awesome. Well, hey, thank you so much for joining us on this episode, Jared. It was a ton of fun. And if you guys enjoyed hearing about Jared's story, let us know over on Instagram, TikTok, at Shane Clinkers Disc Golf. Comment on YouTube. Leave a rating review on Spotify. Let us know your thoughts. And let us know, would you go on this tour that Jared did? We would love to hear from you guys. And we will see you guys next week.